You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're going to be talking about sales enablement. To help us do that, we have with us Scott Santucci, director of the Alexander Group and founder of the Sales Enablement Society. Scott, thank you very much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. And I think everybody should know how much prep work you put beforehand <laughs> in our setup. We were just talking about that. And uh it's, it's kind of amazing uh, how much work you do to make this. So I'm sure that all of your listeners uh, appreciate that. It's fantastic. Excellent. Well, I, I hope it was a, a good experience for you as well. I mean, that's what it's all about is making sure that the guests come in a little bit more forewarned and, and we can have a good time doing this and everybody knows kind of what to expect, right? It's expectation alignment. Yes. So we start the show with a typical off-topic uh, question. Would love to know about a defining moment in your career uh, that you go back to over and over again, take lessons away from. Kind of what was that and what lessons did you learn? So I'm going to uh, ask for two because there are yin and yang uh, of this. And it's sort of like a, a thing that I'm learning here is that there's two sides to each coin. And the more we look at those, the more we can navigate. But I think there's, there's two events one event was when I was a top selling rep way back when in maybe 1990, 1999. And um, uh, I was the number one rep and I decided that I was dissatisfied with our marketing department for a variety of, uh, <laughs> a variety of reasons. Um, and I was much, much younger. So uh, Chad and I talked earlier, you and I talked earlier about being Gen Xers. Yeah. So I was hardcore chip on my shoulder, uh, Gen Xer. And um, decided to throw my weight around uh, of being a top rep and to voice my concerns about uh, about marketing. Um, why it doesn't really matter, but I built a relationship with our CFO. I mentioned that our CFO leaned forward. He said, "Scott, I think you're onto something." I've always felt that um, about fifty percent of the money that we're spending here is worthless, and I think you can help me prove it. So like, ha ha, glad to, <laughs> glad to. And, uh, you know, we, we whiteboarded out uh, some metrics and measures and, you know, I went away and then I got called back uh, a week later to fly up to our headquarters where uh, I was asked to present to the executive committee. And it's the first time a salesperson had uh, presented to the executive committee. And um, I talked about, you know, what those, what those findings were was asked to leave the room. And 30 minutes later, I had a new position. <laughs> so, uh, my position was they made me the VP of product marketing and, and management, which, um, you know, really was a precursor to a sales enablement role. And I had a lot of support from the CFO. We, I had him do a lot of the metrics and we were really successful in transforming our sales force. So we improved our average deal size by 56%. We cut our sales cycle time down uh, by 33%. Uh, we improved our win rates by 25%. And we had finance measure it all. It was like really, really successful. But there was a lot of pain <laughs> in all of that. And hopefully you can imagine I was not as, uh, I wasn't a touchy friendly. I was loved by the sales organization. Maybe not so much <laughs> elsewhere. So I, I, I had all these, you know, these great successes and, um, you know, my head was, a, you know, a, a little big and I got the opportunity to become VP of sales and marketing uh, for a company. So I'm, you know, 29 years old, uh, have all these successes and, um, you know, we, we grew the business or whatever, but I got fired uh, from that job by the board of directors. <laughs> and the big, so that's sort of the, the, the other side of the equation, uh, Chad. And that was, uh, I got fired there in 2003. And I think maybe it was until 2007 that I sort of said, hey, maybe it was me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't them. And that's, that's like a huge hard lesson to like, to, to, to do that. But what I realized was the financial acumen that finance and investors use is a completely different metric system that you and I would use as sales leaders. And that disconnect has only grown. And fortunately, I've, I've seen it and I've been a, at least I've been able to build relationships with other CFOs 
to figure out where my gaps are and, and, and correct it. So I think those are the sort of the two parts, sort of the, hey, you have unconscious competence, you know, as a, as a rep. And I was able to do that and trade on my own personal brand within that company. But then when I lost all that personal brand, I didn't realize um, what I didn't know because I was too confident in, in what I did. And um, that failure has been, you know, I think a godsend. So it's like two, two sides, but I go back to both of those scenarios each time. And um, I've learned a lot from that. And so how does that take you, you know, from those lessons, now director of the Alexander Group and founder of the Sales Enablement Society, help, help us understand the, the, the next progression. What, what made you want to go into sales enablement as aggressively as you have? I think there's a couple points on that. So being in sales for a lot of my life, I have a core belief that it's kind of unfair that salespeople and the sales organization is the most blamed for, but also the most accountable function in the, in the organization. <laughs> yeah. It's what attracts some of us to sales, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. usually about numbers. <laughs> right. And, but they're all morons, right? If you talk to <laughs> we're all morons. We're only coin operated. Yeah. Um, we're all mouth so, breathers. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, oh, it, you know, our job is super easy. We just need to take people out golf and have an expense account. You know, our, the product just sells itself. I mean, I worked for a CEO once that uh, said any monkey can sell our stuff. Literally, <laughs> we said that to the whole company. So I'm like, okay, great. We're a bunch of monkeys, but it doesn't work that way. And so I think there, there's that's one element. But I think another element is um, I really, really resonate a lot with the idea that uh, selling is a team team sport and that there is a bunch of value inside the company that if we can get sort of organized and streamlined behind and sort of configure that uh, the business as a supply chain behind sales, it, that it doesn't need to be so much conflict oriented. I think if we change our focus and, you know, Chad, one of the things we were talking about beforehand is an experience for customers that if we all recognize that no matter what we're selling, whether it be some transnational thing like a doorknob or something, you know, so strategic like a, a digital transformation, anywhere in between, at the end of the day, we're still de dealing with people. And people make both logical and emotive decisions. And if we recognize that and start doing, you know, start moving away from too much of the the build out of the words or demonstration of the product and showing all the metrics and start going back to more of the human side, I think everybody will benefit. Everybody's job will be easier. Marketer's job will be easier. Salesperson's job will be easier. Finance person's job will be easier. So the bridge between where I am now as leading a practice um, at the Alexander Group and also found in the Sales Enablement Society, between those two points, I had a huge opportunity to be a research director at Forrester. So if you don't know about the, the research companies, the analyst com companies, we do a lot of research or, or, or you do a lot of research. And in order to build out, so I built out the, the sales enablement practice. Uh, 2008, we actually published a definition of sales enablement, which we still you know, seem to be doing today. But the, the key idea, Chad, you're, you're about my age. Uh, did you read Spin Selling? Yeah. So Spin Selling is great because here we have, is a, it's a shrink right? Neil Rackham was a trained psychologist. And he had this idea of talking to the head of sales at Xerox. Maybe he talked to other heads of sales. I don't know. I don't, I don't know Neil Rackham, right? But I read the foreword in that book and I just thought it was such a cool idea of saying, hey, I'm a psychologist. Maybe I can find patterns at Xerox sellers of what, what works. And that simple idea and going on interviews, he found some common patterns and boom, now we've got spin selling and customer centric selling and solution selling and all these other derivatives. Genius. Well, that core idea, I always wondered how come no one did that for buyers? So that's what we built our research uh, around at Forrester is executive level buyers. And the, the, the gap man between what buyers are looking for, ex the executive level buyers in B2B selling, Chad, and what we're teaching them and what we're equipping with, it's so giant that it's almost impossible to communicate. It's just night and day different. And we're even like, they'll use a word outcome. And then I'll talk to like some executives that say Cisco is like, well, of course we sell outcomes. It's like, well, that's not what the executives that I, the executives I just interviewed said that, that you're not. 
and it, the, the, they're using the same words and talking past each other. <laughs> and I think understanding that stuff, Chad, is exactly why we need to be more informed as sellers and um, why I sort of got out of the research business because I think um, what I found is that the research that I would publish, I wrote for like the 20% of uh, organizations that were really doing this strategically. And as I got more and more strategic, the more negative feedback I get from everybody. That's not the way to do it. That's not sales. Learning. I was like, it's interesting. I've got measurable results over here <laughs> and you're telling me it's, it's something else. So I, I think that we're only going to be successful if we find the 20% of people out there that are really doing it right. And that's why I, I joined uh, the Alexander Group. Uh, the Alexander Group's been in business for uh, over 30 years, really working on optimizing sales forces and building out sort of the financials of what a sales organization looks like, the compensation, the segmentation, all of this connection to the business strategy, and this whole idea of how we enable the supply chain behind sales to have better conversations is a new and burgeoning area. So joining a consulting company, we can work in a lot more detail about tackling some of these problems in big companies. But the con of that is like all consulting, you just sort of get consumed in, you know, maybe five big projects a year. And I lost all of those connections. So that's really what, what, what led to starting um, the society is really uh, it started out officially in February, 2016, when I try to do a, a meetup group, basically to get some friends in DC <laughs> and, uh, and start talking about things. And, uh, you know, we had about 12 people show up to that first meeting and, and we've grown since then. And so what was the, just for our listeners who may not be tracking, what was the definition or, or maybe not even the Forrester definition, but what is your definition of sales enablement today? Well, I, I think um, since that's something that we're tackling as a society, I'd rather not offer what my personal opinion is. I think what we, what we need to really re look at is what does it mean in each of the companies that we're in? Because uh, what I'd like us to do is stop the religious debates that are happening. It seems like sales and marketing are Christians and Catholics, or, <laughs> or Christians are Protestants and Catholics, and we're just pounding each other. And then the rest of the world, you know, the, the pagans around the world are going, what the hell is going on with these people? They don't know what the hell is going on. We don't want to listen to their, you know, we don't want to listen to their religion. And I think that's what we're doing now is we're doing too much bashing. So for me, what I, I'd rather us do is how do we find systemic ways to unlock and unleash the growth potential that is in every one of our companies? And that would be and different. how do we look at it at more of an executive lens? And how do we, how do we examine how do we get out of our way of looking at everything in an organizational silo? So for me, conceptually, I don't want to say the definition, Chad, but really the idea of sales enablement is a execution fabric that you lay between the sales organization who's trying to solve problems or create new potential for customers and the, the business that's set up today that has to be organized around products because of financial reporting. But products aren't what people are buying today. People are buying experiences and outcomes. And in order to change and pivot, we need some new, uh, some new strategies to um, overcome sort of the organizational uh, construct. So if I were to have, you know, the one phrase of that, it would be the concept of sales enablement is unlocking the growth potential embedded in every single company today by creating an execution fabric to get the rest of the company streamlined around solving problems for customers and equipping sellers to do it. And so will that be different company to company? I mean, if you think about kind of the way team, I mean, there's a typical structures, right? And, and, and typical organizational hierarchies that show up, but each company at least they'll tell you, every, at least they've been telling me, every company, of course, they have different problems, although I don't know, they sound the same as the last 10 clients I had. But, exactly. Um, <laughs> but there, there are some nuances. And so I like that, I like that use of the, of the term fabric because it seems more flexible and, and something that can become more, uh, more of a differentiator for the organization as a, as a whole. Is that a fair kind of a assessment of how it can be implemented and, and potentially benefits realized? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on right there is um, I think part of our 
collective challenge as sales and marketing professionals, all, all of us, is how do we get the rec- the company to recognize that it's not the products or the strategy that differentiates is in the marketplace. It's how that's perceived by the individual wallet owners, the collection of individual wallet owners that are writing checks. So I think one big challenge, Chad, is to help move away from... So one thing I like to talk about is it's important to have a go-to-market strategy, but I think it's also important to have a go-to-customer strategy too. And Uh a go-to-customer strategy means, hey, instead of focusing on what products we've got, what possibilities might we be making for our clients? Instead of focusing on you know, all of the different uh, places or distribution mechanisms, how we could get it, an individual conversation, we already know sort of, sort of the place. So what is the prescription that we're offering or the pattern? Like, how do we help our clients unlock that? Instead of promotion, how are we going to get the word out? I don't know about you, but I don't like being it. I like being interrupted at dinner so little that I don't even answer my phone at home anymore. I don't know about you. I like my mom gets frustrated at me. She can never get a hold of me. Right. Like, mom, you got to text me. It's 2017. <laughs> don't call me at home because I do not answer it at all because I don't like being disrupted. So promotion isn't, isn't, is sort of disruptive. What about uh, providing a path? How, how about we provide our clients a path to success, how, how to get there? And it's super confusing today because everything is, changing so rapidly. And I, and I think customers, I know customers value that. And sort of the last thing is instead of, um, you know, worrying about pricing too much, uh, I think at the end of the day, it's really sort of pr- how do we prove what it is that, uh, how, what we're providing is going to make you successful. And the way I, I like to think about that is let's write the press release of what happens after we've worked together. How have you, Chad, benefited from our company's involvement? And once you start thinking like that, then things become both super, super complicated real quick, but they also become super, super simple real quick also. Well, and simple is not always easy, right? Like the simplicity of it is almost harder. I find at times for people to wrap their heads around than anything else. It's like I, you know, when I'm working with clients and they say, well, we lost this deal on price. I'm like, price is a phantom objection. In my, that's right. in my opinion, is, it's a right. phantom objection. It's a BS. It's a BS objection. Like you on a cold call, all they did was basically tell you to go away. They hung up on you. You didn't do your job. Uh, not to sound too Gen X rough around the edges, but if you're losing on price, then you're not, you're not selling the right way. You're not engaging the right way. You don't understand the, the people that actually can sign the checks. You don't understand what they want and how your solution connects to that. That, that is so, so, so right. The, the way that we've built out our measurement processes in, in, in most B2B companies is we don't really even have the ability to um, map out where the real problem was, which was we never connected with the, you know, adult wallet, you know, the, the, with the adult money, with the uh, person with the wallet. <laughs> right. We never, we never identified with them in the first place. We never mapped to their vision. And one of the things that I find a lot, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Chad, is that when companies use BANT to score opportunities, I'm like, guys, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot already. Because from a buyer standpoint, once they've identified budget, they've already gone through the approval processes. Right. So therefore, once they've already gone through the approval processes, procurements become involved because they have to be involved. They have to in most companies. And if, it's, if procurement's involved, Guess what? We're in a bake-off. Yep. And if we weren't, if we weren't first, we're probably going to lose. And that's another thing. Can, if you don't mind, if I'm going to rant a little bit, I hear a lot of us talking about the CEB data or now Gartner data about the yep. 57% of a buyer's journey is already completed before a salesperson even engages. Like, well, you know what? That might be true if you use the word buying, and if you use the word buying and as sort of RF, RFP responding. Well, yeah, but that's not selling to me. That's not the selling that you learned. That's not the selling that I learned. Selling is about engaging around a business problem and helping to develop that idea. And guess what? You could say that it's sort of like a tale of two cities with sailing. If sell, selling is, is tale of two cities, for as many opportunities that are out there where they're already through the buying process, there's probably more opportunities where the clients have no freaking clue what to do. Right. 
and, and I am being completely, completely non-hyperbolic here. They literally have no idea what to do with a lot of this stuff. Well, those are always I mean, those were always the best deals to find. I mean, when I was an individual contributor, I didn't want somebody to come to me and say, Hey, this is the problem I have. And this is what I need. I wanted to work with them and show them, Hey, you, okay, that's cute. You think this is your problem. That's really not the problem. Here's the business problem you've got. Now let's talk about something that's going to solve that problem. Cause I know you're not looking at it that way yet, right? Though engaging in that way. Ah, shit, that's why I got into sales. That type of, that type of engagement and big problems that went straight to the business. Uh, don't come to me and tell me you need a new server or you need more, you know, data storage or, or whatever it is. That's, ugh, that's boring as hell to me. But when you can engage with somebody and actually talk to them about the problems that their business is having and help them go through that journey because they didn't know where to go, like you were saying, that's where the, that's where I think the true acumen of a sales professional comes out. You're so spot on with that. that, And here's, I think part of the difficulty is because our businesses have over-rotated so hard to um, these financial analyses. (laughs) One of the the problems with the financial analysis is they look at the sales force in aggregate. And one of the the, um, projects uh, that that I like uh, like to do with our clients is to basically break the sales force down into quintiles. And what's interesting is when you do that, so that's like fifths is a, I, sorry, I sounded like a, a, a you sounded like there. an analyst for a second there. Yeah, I know. Right. You're, <laughs> you're, you're the next part. You wanted to punch me in the face there. For uh, I was like, Oh, there's the Forrester part right there. I just saw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to work to, I'm going to work to get rid of it. You spend too much time in Boston and that stuff rubs off on you. <laughs> but, um, break your day, break your sales force down to fifths. And then when you look at it, uh, you know, one client in particular, uh, well, this is basically true with anyone, but their top 20% of sales salespeople, their average contribution was $4.4 million in a year. The next year after that was 1.5 million. The next year after that, 600,000. The next year after that, 250,000. The next year after that, 28,000. Think about that. But what they were doing is because they were a- analyzing everything by aggregate performance, they were building out assumptions based on all of based on the amalgam of all of them. So no program was working for any of them. And when you look at that and you say, what are the top reps doing? The top reps are literally trying like hell to not listen to what they're being provided for by the rest of the company. But yet more, we've actually found that um, enablement actually impedes top reps success. The difficulty is top reps can't really articulate what it is that they're doing. And we're not asking them the right way. So I think that's a big challenge. And I think the difficulty is imagine that you're a top rep and, and you have to navigate so your clients want combinations of a lot of your capabilities. So if you're a SaaS company, you might have two or three uh, different SaaS products. So you would have to engage subject matter experts there. But then you'd have two different kinds of training uh, needs by your client. You'd have training needs on the, pr- on the front end part to make the buyers feel comfortable about what it is, you know, working a different way. And then training on the back end part about how to leverage the, the, the capabilities. And then you'd also have different forms of professional services. You'd have professional services to help get the client to buy in. And then you have professional services to help implement it. The way companies are today is every one of those things that I described are separate PL units. And they'd each want you, Chad, to give, they don't care about the other, <laughs> the other groups. They want you to get the most money out of that account for their one thing. Right. So you, then you can't really trust them to put in front of the client because they're going to over rotate the story that isn't going to be about your client, but you don't have any way to articulate it because every one of those people thinks you're an idiot, that you can't possibly know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> so we, we have these problems of how do we configure those right resources? And then some of the clients will, will actually say, okay, well, we'll fix that by a business architect. But then when do you bring that business architect into your account if you're measuring all of your opportunities by, well, is, got a, is the client got funding? It's like, well, I don't know, but I've got access to the CIO. I think he can come up with some money. Right. You know, like, 
we're over instrumenting things and not using sort of common sense. And I think a, a lot of the friction that, that happens, we've, we put our salespeople like you at a massive disadvantage because of this instrument, instrumentation that we put into it. Well, and you also have, I, I think I've seen you, you have sales execs who want to figure out like how to best enable their teams. But I sense, and, and maybe it's just me, but I sense some of them uh, have a great deal of trepidation, right? And a great deal of fear because maybe they don't understand enablement. Maybe there's too caught between the spreadsheets and, and their teams. You know, how do you help uh, sales executives, revenue executives get over that fear and actually embrace a, an effective type of enablement? So I think there's a bunch of points to that question. I think putting myself in the seat of, of, of a sales leader, one of the reasons that they tend to be resistant to, you know, help, it's sort of like, um, you know, so Chad, you and I are sort of picking on this Gen Xer thing. <laughs> a little, uh, on, on the Gen Xer thing, it's sort of cynical, like, hey, I, you know, we're from the government. We're here to help. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like, hey, we're, from, we're here from corporate. We're right. here to help. And the sales leader's like, I really need help, but boy, I really don't need that help. <laughs> so it's sort of like uh, rolling my eyes. But then on the flip side, the sales leaders do such a really piss poor job of internal communications. Like they're the greatest external communicators, but internally just get too frustrated, right? And um, people don't listen to them. So part of the problem that we've got is a requirement discussion. And no one wants to take the time out to talk about requirements. We just want to do things, do, 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 activity, activity. And then when you get a lot of the activity, you get a lot of random acts. So I think the first thing, if we're looking at it through the lens of a sales, sales force, might be something as simple as taking, um, and simple is hard. I don't want to make this as too difficult, but an area I like to start with is, hey, let's break down so Chad, let's say that you're the head, you're the st VP of state and local sales uh, for a company. So let's make it a little bit more real. Chad, let's break down uh, our pipeline and let's look at the opportunities that we have like baseball. How many, first of all, tell me who is the adult wallet owner that we want to have our sellers have, have appointments with? In other words, which batters do we want uh, to begin with? <laughs> Right. And that question alone is super hard for people to answer. It's like, okay, well, we should probably know who is the wallet owner that we're after. Let's tell me a person. Don't tell me a market. Don't tell me state and local. Don't define it by companies. Tell me an individual because salespeople have individual conversations. So let's say that we want to have a conversation with department leaders in state and local, state and local. Great. Now let's come up with a list of all of those. How many of them did we meet last year? And how many are our are, are salespeople currently meeting with? Oh, zero. <laughs> maybe we should concentrate on getting meetings with those people. But maybe let's just do that. Maybe let's just try to get on first base. You know, so let's have successful meetings. And what would that look like? What is the messaging? What is the content? What kind of skills do we need? And do we have the right skills to engage with those people? And more importantly, how are we going to give salespeople a chance to feel comfortable? Because I myself, when I try to call on CIOs way back when in, you know, 1999, I scared shitless. Um, <laughs> calling on executives. And it would have been so much better if I could role play it out to realize that they're people too. But we don't do that, right? Just go out and do it. Like, go make calls, go make calls. And that makes you stress too. So you don't want to make mistakes, but if you don't ever have that first conversation, you're never going to have it either. So you're never going to get on first base to begin with. <laughs> um, so then the next thing would be, what do we need to do to get on first base? Then the next thing that I, I haven't seen any company really do a good job of is, okay, now we need to get on second base. So how do we get a share? How do we know that we've had a successful meeting with that adult wallet owner? Well, Chad, you and I know that's a simple thing. The client agrees, hey, yeah, Chad, I'll explore that with you further. Well, great. That's a verifiable step. Awesome. Perfect. We did it. The question, though, is what does that conversation look like? If we're showing up with prefab presentations or too much structured whiteboards or whatever, and we're not listening to them, the likelihood of us getting invited back 
is huge because they're taking investment in time and their resources and their people. And we're going to have to learn how to navigate a lot of people because there's a lot of stakeholders involved. That person that we're talking to, Chad, they're not going to do anything, right? So <laughs> they'll buy it, but they're not going to do anything. They're going to delegate all their tasks. So we got to now, now our job is to go get the buy-in from everybody else. So we have to advise him or her who needs to be involved, what the sequence of steps, the evaluation process could look like. We can't expect them to know it because they've never bought the thing that we're, at, we're selling on Tobo before. So how would they know? So there's a lot of stuff in, in step two that just doesn't get done that we put on the backs of salespeople. Then step three, sort of uh, get the third base. How do we get a shared vision of success? Maybe that's our problem. And when, when I do this, by the way, step four is, um, you know, close the business, you know, right. get to home, home base. Duh. <laughs> but what's interesting, Chad, is when I, when I do a pipeline analysis using these four things, and not all the sophisticated sales steps and, you know, of an eight-step or 12-step. I've seen a 50-step sales methodology. It's, it's rigor for rigor's sake, but it's not really informative. When I look at it based on, on, on this, most of the sales cycles, pipelines that I, that I see, they don't look like that nice, neat, inverted triangle. Right. They look like a boa constrictor that's eating pig. <laughs> yeah. And where are they stuck? Those opportunities are stuck in stage three, that shared vision of success. At the end of the day, the client just can't see why moving forward will help. And if they can't see it, if they can't envision it, they're not going to feel comfortable. The political risk is too great. So they'd rather invest the money in their political capital elsewhere. And um, it's such a big problem that I've had to give it an identity when I do readouts is that your biggest competitor is NDI, No Decision Incorporated. <laughs> because too many people are focused on who they think their competitors are. But when we, when we create the variable NDI, uh, it dwarfs. You can add up the losses to all the other actual competitors and add them all up. It still doesn't add up to losing the NDI. That's how giant of a hole we've got at stage three. And I don't see a lot of conservative effort to focus in on that either. And then, you know, bringing it home, if you've done – if you got it on first base, second base, and third base, closing, that's just a lot easier. Well, it should be a, it should be a normal outcome of a well-executed sales approach. It shouldn't. That's right. And it's never like, okay, home, home may be the close, but when, when I work with clients, it's always about, I'm more interested in, okay, yeah, you got it closed, but when are you going to be back in that, back with them, analyzing the value that you've provided? When are you going to go back and say, okay, they had this business issue. You sold them, you got them around the, you got them around the field. And now you're coming back for the all-star game to talk about, Hey, what were the results your business saw as, you know, out of buying and working with us on this? Let's look at the value realization. And that allows you to upsell, cross sale, go across the organization, things like that. And I just, I'm not seeing a lot of people do it. And I, I don't know. I mean, like I said earlier, it keeps me employed because that's what I help them do. But, but, but I don't understand why, why everybody is so focused on, uh, the spreadsheets on, but this is where I am in, at this step. And this is where I am at this. Like, you, yes, you need to do that, but there's a, you get paralyzed almost. I see, I see sales execs and reps get paralyzed looking at their computer screen instead of being in front of and working with the customers. You're right. And I, and I think the, the direction of this, though, is I want to make sure that we're not saying that the source of the challenge is with sales. I mean, the, the, the thing that I will say absolutely is that sales can do a much better job of is saying simplifying. Because I think that when they talk about the pipeline and the forecast, they over communicate so much detail. But <laughs> I learned uh, as a, uh, you know, why I got fired. I communicate so much detail that the bosses, first of all, they don't want to admit that they don't know, but they don't. And then it's so much overwhelming information that they feel uncomfortable. And, and, and uh, it's too easy to point out inconsistencies when you have a ton of stuff. When you just lead with say, hey, here's a simple model to think about sales and we need help in these particular areas. Now I can articulate what my requirements are. But on the flip side, though, the, the, the rest of the organization, there's no one throat to choke 
using Gen X language. You can, I'm sure you're rolling your eyes and thinking about all the human resource violations that I'm doing when I talk to you, but you know, we, <laughs> oh, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, you know, to you know, middle, middle-aged guys talking, but, uh, there is no throat to choke for the, the supply chain behind sales. Is it marketing? Who in marketing? Is it demand gen? Is it the solutions marketing? Is it the product marketing? Is it the brand marketing? Is it the analyst relations group who says that, that, that they do that? Which group is it? Or what about within sales themselves? How many different sales overlays or sales best practices or sales excellence or sales operations or sales training or sales playbooks or, or things are we generating? Or heck, what about human resources getting into the game with uh, the recruiting um, that they're doing and the, and the work that they're trying to do there or the learning and development activities or the training program, the, the other kinds of training programs or the culture work that they're doing. And finance, bless their hearts, are trying to help by providing more structure to the pipelines and forecasting and the like. So everybody is in the business of helping sales and there is no structure or governance or prioritization to all of those random access sales enablement. So step number one is I think the sales organization needs to step up and say, here's what the requirements are. But then somebody's got to look at this and say, okay, what are we enabling to? Are we enabling a checklist based on a whole bunch of product launches and reactive things, which is what we get today is the byproducts of lots of deliverables and lots of things thrown over the wall to salespeople that somehow miraculously Albert Einstein couldn't put together and figure out what we're going to ask our salespeople to do. That's one thing. Or are we talking about enabling salespeople and say that, you know, what the assumption is that um, most of our salespeople suck and we need to make them more executive sellers to sell to CXOs. And I have yet to meet a CXO, like, like a specific C-level person to sell to. Thank you. Thank you. Not CXO. So are we going to enable them to do that or do ch- be challenger sellers or whatever? Or are we going to enable them to be customer advocates? And then if so, who's the one source of knowledge about customers inside a company today? And there isn't one. So I think there are some really fundamental questions that need to be asked and elevated for this sales enablement problem to be truly, uh, truly addressed. And I think the head of sales could do, do themselves a huge favor by taking the time to call it out instead of resisting, you know, sort of the, when I talk to other sales leaders in chat, it's sort of like this, this thing of like, ask Scott, why do I want to fight with city hall? Is it (laughs) because you haven't fought city hall in 10 years, dude. And now you don't really have complete authority over your hiring practices. It's shared with finance and human resources. You don't really have a, the right say in terms of the headcount that you want because it's always going to get aligned when you build groups, overlay groups. Finance says that becomes too expensive and you can't account for it, so they make you cut it. Uh, you don't really have a say in terms of the messaging um, because that's done by um, uh, various marketing departments and like. So. I'm going to ask you, other than the people that you manage directly, what, what control do you have of your fate? And we got to quit fighting City Hall. And I, I, so I think that through the lens of the sales leader, that's a place to start. And what's going to be interesting is, or what I found is interesting that the biggest ally is typically the CFO, if you can get past the pipeline conversation, which right. tends to not you know, get pulled into the, into the weeds too quickly. So is that is is all that where kind of the idea for the sales enablement society came from? Where was what was the inspiration for founding that and starting that and getting that rolling? Well, that's a great question. So the the I guess in retrospect to make it simple is when you I don't want to say this is true with anybody. When I uh, <laughs> got involved uh, at, at Forrester and you get there for six years and you have all of this input. I mean, I I interviewed. I interviewed 80 CFOs. I had data points of 2,000 executive level buyers, both in survey data and interview data over, over a period of time. I presented to sales kickoffs of at least 15, 20,000 reps. You get hired to be you know, uh, a, a keynote speaker, all, all this other stuff, and people kind of kiss your butt. You tend to think you have the answer and you can kind of become a little arrogant. So I think at, at first, I was sort of pushing the answer too hard, you know, saying, I got the answer. I got the answer. I got the answer. But 
I don't think that we were as a market really aware of what the challenges are. And guess what? I didn't have the answer. I had a part of the answer, just like you have a part of the answer. So the idea of the society was really, and, and one of the things that, um, that, I, that I do is, first of all, what are we? We are a completely volunteer organization. So I mentioned that we started out sort of like as a local meetup. It was for me to have friends as sort of a transition period of me de-assholifying de- myself. <laughs> uh, maybe you can edit that out for the kids. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm keeping that. Is <laughs> <laughs> an asshole? <laughs> no, no. I'll just put NSFW on the images for this one. Not safe for work. So <laughs> right. well, that'll help with the ratings, right? Right. Yeah. It'll probably be the most downloaded episode we've got. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but as part of that process and in, in having these meetup groups, some interesting things happen. You start to realize that, hey, we want to be inclusive here. We don't have, you know, Catholic Protestant debates. Let's be all inclusive. Everybody in the organization should be focused on revenue growth, right? It's a team sport. And why are we being exclusive of that? Um, let's be inclusive. So we got to a point where we were having these uh, local chapter meetings that were just awful. So that's I'm going back to Feb, you know, from February, March, April in 2016. These are terrible meetings because they're sort of unstructured and open or whatever. Yep. And we'd have about 20 people come here or there. But if you saw Fight Club, we started having other chapters to, or other people in other cities saying, hey, can you start that? Can you start a group there? And it's difficult to do when it's all volunteers and, you know, I have a day job of uh, actually doing consulting work and trying to win business that way. Uh, so we got this idea of having uh, November in November 2016 uh, to take a section of our Alexander Group's conference and invite people to show up sort of like the Declaration of Independence thing, uh, you know, that that con- Continental Congress yep. is invite people who had an opinion about sales and they want to come in and say, Hey, what should this be? So we officially formed at that meeting where we had over a hundred people show up and create a, you know, a mission that everybody signed like the declaration of independence to that. We exist to promote and elevate the role. So our story now then is, all right, we want to test this thesis about what growth actually is. And in order to test that, we made sort of like this pack. We picked out, we made very crazy objectives in February of, of 2017, like ridiculous objectives. I mean, we don't even have an, we didn't have an organization. We just founded. We only had like two or three chapters. And we, we said, we're going to be an organization dedicated to figuring out what growth is. And we picked uh, some really ridiculous goals. So, you, you know, keep in mind, you're founding an organization, picked a ridiculous goal. So one goal was, uh, that we were going to have 5,000 members by the end of the year. That's crazy. <laughs> then we said we we're going to have 20 chapters, you know, which is also just crazy. We were going to create our own platform for all of our members. By the way, membership's free right now, right? So how do you create a platform with no resource, no money, no full-time employees, literally from scratch? How do you do that? But no, nope, that's a goal that we're going to do. We're going to create a common platform for a dedicated place for everybody to log in. You know what we're going to do? We're going to have a conference. And how do you get a conference going without any money? I mean, company places, you have to have it at a place, right? We can't have it at a barn. <laughs> you have to have it at a place. So you have to get a place to agree to do it, and they want money. How do you do that? But uh, screw it. We'll figure it out. So we're going to have a conference. We were going to reach out to an entity to cover us, you know, to like one of these magazines or places because there was no dedicated sales and they want coverage at this time last year. What else? So those are just a few of the uh, few of the goals. And here we are on October 11th. And um, somehow without again, I want to make sure this is super clear. We don't have a bank account. There is no bank account. There is no money. <sighs> All of the work is done completely by volunteers. It's people buying into the vision and, and participating in it. And we are building an org structure as we grow. So we didn't have that. So that means people are joining to a volunteer organization without knowing exactly what to do or what a culture is. But over that, over that time between February and now, we have 2,200 members, which is obviously shy of 5,000. Uh, but it's still like, pretty I mean, impressive. I mean, that's damn impressive. 
100 to 2,200. Yep. And by the way, we don't have a single place. There is no website to go to, to say, here's what a member is. So it's, like, <laughs> it's kind of like a quest to, <laughs> you know, to figure out how to join. And then one of the big questions is, so how do I know whether I'm joined or not? <laughs> like, how do I know whether I'm a member or not? So there's something where, you know, we obviously have to work out. Here's something that, that I'm kind of proud of. We have 29 chapters. Wow. Blew that number so, out of the water. Yeah. And here's the amazing thing. We have chapters in Egypt, Egypt, in Germany, in Holland, in the UK, in Ireland, in Australia, Singapore, uh, India, and Canada, and of course, the US. I mean, think about the global expansion there in, what, 11 months and that kind of footprint. And some of our biggest, our, our, one of our biggest chapters is actually in London. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive spread. I mean, in 11 months. Yep. We have a platform. So we were able, uh, using our members, we're able to persuade or work out an arrangement with HireLogic. HireLogic is a enterprise class community platform uh, provider. So we were able to get them to donate that, that, well, not totally donate. There's other things to it, but still in the business of creating something out of nothing to uh, create a deal to, to let us leverage that enterprise class software. So how do you go about a, a membership? How do you get 2,000 members which are dispersed and we don't have a common database because that would require money and infrastructure? How does an organization with no money deploy enterprise class software? Because you have to configure it. You have to build a, you know, sort of a plan for it. You have to you, you have to deploy it. You have to come up with an adoption strategy and all of that. And you also have to do program management, all of those things. So in an enterprise, you know, if you're if you think about deploying enterprise software, think about like what that would look like. The budget that you do to go through, the program management place that you put them in, in, involved, the amount of work that you do on working on the requirements, the implementation strategy, the rollout, and how long that might that be? Maybe a year. Let's say it's six months. You know, you're moving really fast, six months. And then you have a budget and you can hire external people to go and configure that. We had none of that. But you know what we did? We, with our members who are, again, volunteering at night doing this stuff, four months, they configured it and rolled it out. And in terms of like verifiable metrics, if we have 2,200 members, we have over 900, uh, over 900 people who've gone through and, and logged into the system and established their own profiles. So that's a 45% rate, you know, activation rate. And in companies today, like you, you can say, well, that's no big deal with well, Salesforce. It's like, but, but you put the rule in that people won't get compensated unless they use it. We don't have that. We don't have that lever. There's no stick. So it, right. We have only the, the, the goal of influence and persuasion. And 45% is a ridiculous metric. And the fact that it was done in four months with no project management, with no uh, people, what well, was project management done a completely different way? How about the fact that we're going to have a conference and we designed a conference by practitioners for practitioners. It was marketed by practitioners and it's being delivered by practitioners. All volunteers are doing all of that stuff. And of course you look at it and say, well, where's the gender? Where's this? Where's that? And you just get all the, the knocks. And yes, we had to create, we don't officially have a bank account. We've hired a company to manage this stuff for us so we can keep the, keep true with the, we don't have a, we don't have a bank account. So we outsourced that and we needed to pay for it. And we're not, uh, from what I understand, it's, and maybe a listener can call us out if this isn't true. What I understand, it's uh, very unlikely or very, very uncommon for a company to not lose money on its first conference. Well, we're going to be able to convert some of this money uh, and fund other things. So we're set up as a nonprofit organization, so it's not technically profit. But the, the whole experience is the, the partners. So typically at a conference, you'd have sort of a room of, of, uh, of suppliers, right? Well, we're not letting them call themselves suppliers or vendors or anything like that. And we're not letting them set up as separate booths. We're designing those people as part of the engagement. So the sponsors are designed into the engagement and we're encouraging them as like, look, if you show up and talk about your products, you're going to come off like jerks. Why don't you tell stories? about how you've helped other people be successful 
and every one of our members are going to want to do it. We've had a 100% conversion rate on um, our sponsorship requests, and none of them know how to do it. So we had to set up a member to help uh, manage that experience. We have all of these things. I mean, we're going to have a, a coverage desk, so we're going to do live feeds from it to be able to capture the buzz out of it. Uh, all of our sessions are interactive and the like, and we're going to sell out. So our conference is going to sell out. There's only a few amount of tickets on October 10th or October 11th. There's only a few left, but you know, it's, it's going to sell out. And maybe this time a month ago, people are worried about whether or not we, we should have the conference or not. It's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and then uh, we have a partnership with Selling Power Magazine. Uh, so Selling Power Magazine has been in business for, you know, 20 years. Everybody in sales, you, you're certainly familiar with that. Oh, yeah. They're going to do dedicated sales and they won't cut coverage. And we're the content editors of that. And we're going to be supplying all the people to provide uh, membership there. We're going to have an announcement in October that I, I can't share with you yet that's dealing with the University of Texas, Dallas. We're building partnerships between education educators. Like, Chad, do you know that to date... There's not been one report written, and I'm, I'm sure I'm getting it wrong, thesis or whatever, doctoral study in the academic community about sales and AWA. Not one. Not one. Not one. Not at all. Not, not zero. Not one. Not one. Not one. Zero. That's going to change. So we're building a community of, uh, of educators to partner with us uh, on that. We're reaching out to industry analysts, and we built a, a group. We are taking over the definition of sales enablement. That's why I didn't want to ask you, tell you. It's not really for me to say what my definition is of sales enablement. I just say, here's how I think about it. But in terms of what the definition is to set our profession forward, our members are doing it. And we're running it like the Constitution. So we're coming up with the Virginia plan right now. Our South Florida chapter is doing it. The whole chapter is doing it. They're working uh, in partnership. We have industry analysts, serious decisions, CSO insights, and um, uh, IDC are participating and helping us craft out that. We have uh, educators uh, involved. We have uh, practitioners, three teams of practitioners, and we have uh, vendors involved. And I don't know of an uh, of a standards group that's ever been run by practitioners and executed by practitioners. Normally, it's like you know. The companies getting together, like Sony and v, uh, Sony and everybody else, getting together and say, "This is what VHS is," you know. And we're going to decide for you, yep. for you morons. <laughs> we're doing it ourselves, and it's super hard because all we want to do is disagree with each other. Of course, so guys, we got to elevate, and we're rolling out the Virginia plan there, and we're going to have at our conference like this war room where people can come in and 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 comment on it. And then after that, we're going to ratify it and send it back out to our 29 chapters and have each chapter vote on it and then say, we have decided that this is what it is. So I just think it's, it's, a, it's a miracle what can happen when you unlock and unleash humans who are focused on growth and passionate about sales and marketing, what we can accomplish if we're freed up from conventional wisdom and not having anybody that we have to answer to by money helps us do it. And then after this conference, when we show all the amazing things that everybody's doing, Chad, we're going to be able to say, look what we accomplished. Look at these growth metrics without any money, without any resource, without any organizational structure. Now imagine what we could do if you'll let us do it inside our companies and give us the resources to do it and give us the right way to do it. This is what we can do and help unleash growth in every one of our companies. It's an impressive accomplishment. What's that? It's an impre impressive accomplishment. I mean, it, seriously. I mean, in that kind of time frame to pull that kind of off that many people around the globe. I mean, that, all volunteers. You don't hear that. You don't hear stories like that these days. No, no. And it's because we stayed focused instead of talking about all the things, the, the amount of knocks. You should do this. You should do this. You should do this. Those were all checklist things. We are focused on the community. We are focused on, you know, the buyer, the kinds of things that you talk about all the time when you talk about what salespeople should do. We're just trying to do that at a, at a broad, broad way. And the things that we're learning is how difficult it is because it's so hard to build an organization around an experience of customers. And that's really what, uh, what we're going to accomplish at our conference is we're about elevating each individual person's ability to perform a little bit better when they go back on Monday. 
we're about elevating their role in their department inside their organizations, and we're about elevating the profession. And when you look at each of those different lenses, there's different tracks for each one. But when you look at all of this, all of this information together, we've learned a lot by doing rather than thinking about it or building spreadsheets or checklists or anything like that. We didn't build one checklist and we didn't build one spreadsheet. <laughs> we concentrated on focusing on members and what that would look like and having the conversations that I think you and I both learned you know, when we learned about sales way, 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 way back when. So any rate, it's, uh, I'm goddamn proud of what these people have accomplished. <laughs> I really am. And it's, it's remarkable it be. to be part of it. I mean, it should be. It is, again, a definitely an impressive uh, accomplishment. So let's kind of pivot here for a second, change direction yep. a little bit. I always ask our guests two standard questions at the end of every interview. Um, first one is, you know, you're working for the Alexander Group. That makes you a prospect. The, the, that's the polite word. It makes you a target for sales professionals. And so I'm curious when somebody wants to get your attention, when somebody wants to sell you something, somebody that you don't know, what's the best way to go about capturing your attention and building credibility with you? That's a, that, Chad, that's a remarkably great question that everybody should ask all the time. I think it's be authentic. And, and what I mean by that is be blunt. Hey, I'd like to start a conversation with you. Be sincere. Say, hey, if it doesn't work out, it's cool. I just want to get the conversation going. And then number three, show that you know something about me or align with me that we're going to be able to have a valuable conversation. What I can't stand is, hey, look at my demo or Scott, are you in the, uh, in the need of X, Y, and Z? I should start publishing Maybe, maybe this is something we could do to Chad uh, <laughs> is start publishing like the bad examples. So I actually <laughs> be a bad salespeople. I use the crappy um, ones in class all the time. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, let's, let's publish it. Let's make them known. Like this is terrible, but just show that you're going to be a human being with me. And I don't know all the answers. That's the miraculous thing about the society, or that's also the, like, it's tough to say as a, as a consulting head that I don't have all the answers. Maybe that's not good for business, um, <laughs> but you know what? It resonates because it's authentic. My job isn't to come to you as a, as an executive and say, I got all the answers. My job is to share with you the war stories that says I've been there with you before. And I have an approach of how we can figure it out together. If people engage with me that way, damn, I'd spend a ton of time with them. And then I'd also want you to sort of participate with me to figure out what we could do together. Because money is, a, is the grease to make the growth engine go. I want to give out money if it's going to help grow. But if I'm just giving you money so that I, I can meet your quota or buy yet another technology that I'm not going to use, I'm not really interested in that. Yeah, it goes back to that experience thing we were talking about. It's, Bingo! It's got to it's, it's got to be back to the experience working from the customer back. And everybody, people buy from people. End of the day, it's not going to change. People buy from yep. people. Yep. Yep. So showing up and being authentic is really really hard, but it, it, at least on my end of the table, it resonates so much more. Excellent. All right. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. There was one piece of advice you could give to sales, marketing, or professional services people, just one piece of advice that you believe would help them uh, hit their targets, um, you know, achieve their goals. What would it be and why? It's not about you. And I'm pausing for dramatic effect. <laughs> it's not about you. And I, I'm saying this as sort of a self-recovering person who beats the crap out of myself <laughs> about, oh my God, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. It's not about you. Humans, everybody's got a different mindset and, and view of the world. And your number one job is to figure out what, so let's say that you're selling to a, a, a customer. Your job is to first figure out who the adult wallet owner is and figure out what their mindset is, align to it. And then what is the mindset of the people that work for them so that you can match and make that come true? Then you have to do the same thing with all of the resources that you need to bring to bear inside your company. It's not about you. You're just a conductor. And if you start recognizing that it's about being that conductor, you'll be way, way, way more successful. I just think it's extra hard in today's day and age, Chad, because we get these 
one hit wonders of you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And we're on monthly uh, sales calls to evaluate the pipeline that reinforces, no, it is about you, Chad. <laughs> your numbers suck <laughs> or your numbers are great or your numbers were great last quarter, but they suck now. You know, what have you done for me lately? And rising above that is critically important to be successful because no one's going to buy from you unless you're about them. And it's just so, so hard today, but yeah. it's not about you. Agreed. 100%. Scott, if a listener's interested in talking to you more about the Sales Enablement Society or Alexander Group, what's the best way to get in contact with you? So the, the number one easiest way to get in contact with me is on LinkedIn or my email address, you know, send me a direct email. So LinkedIn, just find Scott Santucci and, and connect. I'm kind of liberal with the connections there because I, I, I like to engage with people. But on the, on the email, I'm, you know, please, <laughs> be, you know, be sincere. But that's S-S-A-N-T-U-C-C-I at alexandergroup.com. Those are, those are my preferred methods. And then if, you, you know, eventually uh, I may give you my cell phone. Text is like the best way to get a hold of me now. We were talking about that chat yep. uh, you know, with my mom and the phone. But uh, yeah, text is a, is, is a great way because I can at least respond back to you when I'm on a conference call or something. Excellent. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today. It has been absolutely great to have you on the show. Can, can I plug this for a second? Sure. I, I, want, I want everybody to know a couple things. Number one, um, the questions that you ask are really smart. And I think sometimes when you're listening to something, you just sort of go, eh, and just sort of listen. Every one of the questions that you asked are practical and pragmatic, not theoretical. So I think that's really important to know is that when you're listening to information, are you, in, are you listening to something that's about, can I execute it and will it work rather than, oh, that's a good idea. Everybody's talking about artificial intelligence. Of course, the world is going to be all robots selling to robots. <laughs> you know? um, I think that's incredible. I think also what no one else knows that's listening, the amount of effort that you personally put in to prepare for this is amazing. Now, I'm not saying this to be critical, but I get this email and I've done several podcasts before. And normally what I do, Chad, is I just sort of take over if I don't know what to talk about. So I'm just like, <laughs> here's what I'm going to talk about. But what's amazing about having structure is it actually allows for a lot better conversation. It's, it seems oxymoronic, but what, what Chad does is, first of all, he has somebody reach out, you know, find, find people to go connect with, which is like, okay, that's kind of neat. Then there's the scheduling step. And then I give some talking points or some ideas. And then step number four, I get this email that is, I don't want to say long because I don't want to, I don't want to have that implication, but it's thorough and it's organized and it's structured. And it shows, number one, to me, what commitment you have to your listeners, which is goddamn fantastic. And Chad, have we ever talked before? I don't believe we have. I mean, I think we've exchanged some emails, especially in the earlier days of the Enablement Society, but I don't believe we've ever actually spoken. Never even spoke before. And listen, to, I, I mean, it sounds, I don't know, I, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me, to me, I think if I'd be listening to this, it sounds like we'd known each other for a long time. <laughs> that kind of delivery is only only able if you go through that sort of structure. And we chatted, you know, beforehand, like humans, hey, tell me your story, help me tell your story, what you think. And we talked a bit about Gen Xing and things like that. So that's why we were referring about Gen Xing. Um, I think it's remarkable. And I think that that kind of dedication that you show to your, just for something that somebody could think is as trivial as a, pod, as trivial as a podcast says a lot about you. And um, you're definitely somebody that I'd, lo I'd uh, love to stay uh, more in contact with because I'm thoroughly impressed. And sometimes when you're listening to something, you don't appreciate all the work that goes into it. And um, shit, Chad, I think you should do a podcast on how you make a podcast. <laughs> it's, it's funny, actually. So we, when we first started this, we started using an agency called Sweetfish Media. And James Carberry, he's pretty uh, prolific on LinkedIn. And he put up a post about how he does 
podcasts and he, I mean, he aims for 15 to 17 minutes. I'm going for longer format, but he, and they do it daily. So there's a couple of differences, but he puts up, he's like, yeah, we just pick a topic and then we hop on Skype and we start talking. And I got on LinkedIn and I'm like, yeah, no, I totally disagree. I don't believe that that, especially for the types of guests that I want to bring on and entice and the value that look, I'm doing it for selfish reasons. I'll be right up front. I like talking to executives and, and sales professionals to learn from them. I want to learn and I'm constantly trying to evolve. Yeah. Okay. It turns out that our listeners enjoy it and we get a lot of great feedback, but at the end of the day, I got a goal here and that's to educate myself and make those connections and, and be authentic. So I, to me, it just takes, it takes more time. It takes more thought and out of respect for your time, my time and the goals that, 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 you know, we're trying to accomplish here. I think it takes a little bit more time than, Hey, here's my Skype ID. Let's just wrap for 15 minutes. Yeah. And, and I, well, I, hopefully it shows. And I think if you're, I hate to call this out. You can maybe edit this out if you don't want. <laughs> but if you're listening to this podcast, I think you should give Chad some feedback. Like this is the kind of effort this person puts into something. I'm 100% sure if you gave him feedback as, hey, here's how I do it. I put my headphones on and I listen to you while I mow the lawn. And I like the fact that it sounds like a conversation that I'm into and about topics. Like give him that kind of feedback so he knows he's on the right track. Because I don't know about you, Chad, but I, I've gotten accustomed to only getting negative feedback. And like, you can't keep rechanging everything. What about, what about giving them the feedback of the stuff that's working? Or I think also what would be valuable is don't you want to hear what, you know, three shows ago, what somebody did and then give Chad some of that story? Because I'd love, he'd, I'm sure he'd love to be able to say, hey, you know, three episodes we talked about um, prospecting. Here's one of the ideas of one of our listeners of what they did. And here's how they turn that idea into action. I think if you could give him some of that feedback, dang it, I think it would be fan fantastic. And as a listener of podcast myself, I'm like, I get invested in, in the author and, you know, to have somebody put this kind of effort into it, I'd be all vested in the, you know, what Chad thinks. Well, help Chad out, give him a call or leave a voicemail for him or something like that. Send him an email and say, here's what I did. Here's what I liked about that. Here's what, what matters to me. Because the reason that you're listening to this is you want to get better. Who wants to hear about complaints? <laughs> well, you know? I'll take it all. And we do actually, if you guys hit the B2B RevExec website, there's a link. You give, we got a feedback form. If you give me feedback, I'll shoot you a $5 Starbucks gift card uh, for your time. Good bad, indifferent. Uh, I like Scott's ideas. So again, I'm doing this and we ask for the reviews on iTunes because I, I want to know what you guys want to hear. I mean, yes, I'm doing it for selfish reasons, but there are other people out there. I get emails. I do get some of those complaints. I do read them for those that don't get a response back. I'm a Gen Xer. My response back would not be particularly professional. So, <laughs> so, so, but I do want the feedback and, and I do appreciate the, the compliments, Scott. Again, it's been awesome having you on the show. Everybody, please check out the B2B RevExec website, uh, share the family with friends, uh, share the show with friends, family, coworkers. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review on iTunes. We do look at those regularly. Until next time, we have Value Prime Solutions. Wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.